political bullshit. Kyle Rittenhouse, a.k.a. the Kenosha Shooter, a.k.a. Crocs, shot and killed two people in Kenosha a couple weeks ago. And the controversy around the shootings has people heavily divided. Big surprise. But actually, it's a surprise because it's not that often that you have a portion of the population actually defend the shooter. Even President Trump has come out in defense of Kyle Rittenhouse. Are you going to condemn the actions of vigilantes like Kyle Rittenhouse? Um, we're, we're looking at all of it. Uh, that was an interesting situation. You saw the same tape as I saw. And uh, he was trying to get away from them, I guess, it looks like. And he fell. And then they very violently attacked him. I guess he was in very big trouble. He would have been, I, he probably would have been killed. But. So let's look into why this is. So I see three big arguments that people are having about whether or not his actions were justified. One is self-defense. Was he just defending himself against those that he shot and killed? Second is a castle doctrine defense. Did he have the right to use deadly force because he was defending property? And third is the argument around firearm possession. Was it legal for him to have it in the first place because he's just 17 years old? And then there's actually a fourth one that I want to talk about too, which is the surprising defense they decided to go with in court, which is that he's protected under the Second Amendment because he was a part of a well-regulated militia. So before I get into all that, first a quick timeline of events just to provide some context. So Kyle was allegedly there to defend a used car lot. When the shootings occurred, he wasn't anywhere near the used car lot He was that he was supposedly there to defend. He was in some parking lot blocks away. So what exactly led up to the first shooting isn't totally clear. There's no doubt that you'll hear Kyle defenders talk about how he was being chased and threatened by protesters, and that's why he was so far away from the area that he was supposedly defending. But then there are also many people saying he was walking around pointing his loaded rifle at innocent protesters, at families walking down the street who weren't even part of the protest, pointing it at people in cars, telling them to get out of the car. So there's no video leading up to the first shooting. So we don't know exactly what led up to it, but there is video of the shooting. So in the in the video, you see Kyle being chased by the first victim. Then there were rumors of a Molotov cocktail. There was no Molotov cocktail. The man throws a plastic baggie at him. And then Kyle turns around after he throws the plastic baggie and shoots him five times in the hip, back, the hand, the thigh, and the head. So after he shoots him, Kyle hangs around for like 10 seconds. He calls up his buddy, and then he runs away while other people help the person that he just killed. So as he's running away, people who just witnessed the shooting ran after him to disarm him, to detain him. I'm sure some people wanted to beat the shit out of him, but they were chasing after him because if there's an active shooter that just killed somebody, you don't want to just let them keep walking around more people. So they were essentially driving him out. And that's when he shot the second man in the heart and the third man in the arm. And that third man was the only one that survived.
So everybody has very strong and divided opinions about this. So I'm going to set my opinions aside for the most part as much as I can, because who cares about another asshole's opinion on YouTube? Let's look instead at the law and see what that says about it. So the first case is self-defense. Now, Wisconsin statute 939.48 covers self-defense. Section one states, a person is privileged to threaten or intentionally use force against another for the purpose of preventing or terminating what the person reasonably believes to be an unlawful interference with his or her person by such other person. The actor may intentionally use only such force or threat thereof as the actor reasonably believes is necessary to prevent or terminate the interference. The actor may not intentionally use force which is intended or likely to cause death or great bodily harm unless the actor reasonably believes that such force is necessary to prevent imminent death or great bodily harm to himself or herself. Now, legal garble can be a little difficult to just take in and process all at once. So in short, what this is saying is that you're able to use force against somebody if that person is illegally interfering with you, but you can only use the minimal force necessary to terminate the interference. You cannot cause death or great bodily harm unless you believe you're being threatened with death or great bodily harm. So in a nutshell, self-defense is legal as long as the force is proportionate to the threat in Wisconsin. That's according to Wisconsin state law. Now, there are a couple of things that actually null this right to self-defense. Section two of the same statute, paragraph A states, a person who engages in unlawful conduct of a type likely to provoke others to attack him or her and thereby does provoke an attack is not entitled to claim the privilege of self-defense against such an attack except when the attack which ensues is a type causing the person engaging in the unlawful conduct to reasonably believe that he or she is imminent in imminent danger of death or great bodily harm. In such a case, the person engaging in the unlawful conduct is privileged to act in self-defense, but the person is not privileged to resort to the use of force intended or likely to cause death to the person's assailant unless the person reasonably believes he or she has exhausted every other reasonable means to escape from or otherwise avoid death or great bodily harm at the hands of his or her assailant. So essentially what this is saying is that if you are engaging in illegal activity yourself, and that illegal activity is what provoked the attack, you're no longer entitled to use self-defense. Unless, again, you're facing death or great bodily harm. But in this instance, even if you are, the use of force is still limited more than the original statute or the first section because you engaged in illegal activity that provoked the attack. You're no longer entitled to use proportionate force unless you've already exhausted every other option. So one more smaller paragraph under this law. Section 2, paragraph C states, A person who provokes an attack, whether by lawful or unlawful conduct, with intent to use such an attack as an excuse to cause death or great bodily harm to his or her assailant is not entitled to claim the privilege of self-defense. So this means that if you're provoking the attack, even in a way that's not illegal, if you provoke an attack because you're looking for an excuse to attack somebody yourself, you're not entitled to self-defense. So three important points to take away from this law. One, if you're behaving as a normal law-abiding citizen, you're legally entitled to self-defense proportionate to the force being used against you. Second is if you're participating in any illegal activity, then you forfeited your right to self-defense unless it's to prevent death or great bodily harm. And, and unless you've exhausted every other option already. Third, if you intentionally provoke somebody to get them to attack you, 
so that you may attack them in a way that causes death or great bodily harm, you're not entitled to self-defense in that situation. So then three questions we have to ask about Kyle Rittenhouse. Was his use of force proportionate to the force being used against him? Was he engaged in any illegal activity that would void his self-defense defense? Is it reasonable to believe he was acting as a provocateur so that he could use force and claim self-defense? So let's go to the first shooting, the man that he shot and killed, the, that he shot five times. So that man was unarmed and he had caused no harm to Kyle. So that man was chasing him out. But if you want to argue that killing somebody is proportionate to an unarmed person chasing after you, that means that you can essentially use deadly force in almost any confrontation. So if, if somebody pushes me at the bar, that's more harm than Kyle had faced from that man. He was being chased by an unarmed man. If somebody pushed me at the bar, that means I can now pull out a knife and stab him in the neck. Clearly that's wrong. If somebody pushes you at the bar and you stab them in the neck, nobody's going to be surprised to hear that you were charged with murder or homicide. And clearly the force that Kyle used was far from proportionate to the force he was defending himself against because that man was not armed at all. Second, was he engaged in any illegal activity that led to this encounter? Well, most notably, he may have been illegally possessing the firearm in the first place. So if he was, that would void his right to self-defense right there unless he was facing death or great bodily harm, which if you look at the proportionate argument that we I just talked about briefly, he wasn't. But I'll get more into the firearm possession later because he was likely breaking another law. That's easier to prove. Wisconsin statute 941.20 covers endangering safety by use of dangerous weapon. Section one of this statute, paragraph A states, you're guilty of a class A misdemeanor if you endanger another's safety by the negligent operation of a dangerous weapon. Section one, paragraph C states, you're also guilty of a class A misdemeanor if, except as provided in subsection 1N, you intentionally point a firearm at or toward another. So it's illegal to operate a gun in a way that endangers others, and it's illegal to point your gun at others. And to be clear, the exception made in that statute, the subsection 1M, that isn't an exception in any way of allowance. It's actually an exception to the severity. It says if you point a firearm at an officer or a firefighter or an ambulance driver, then it's actually a felony, not a misdemeanor. And I'm only bringing that up to show that that exception is irrelevant to this case. So if Kyle was pointing his gun at or toward people who were not an immediate threat to him or anybody else, that's illegal according to that state law. And I'm not aware of any video that shows him doing this, but there is video of him before the shooting where he's being interviewed by an independent journalist, where he's going around asking people if they need medical attention. And a guy says, hey, I remember you. You pointed your gun at us and told us to get out of the car. Now you act like you're helping, asking if we need medical help? Get the fuck out of here. And then Kyle just smiles and walks away. Yesterday or today? Today. What what car over in the dealership? Sorry. It's pretty obvious that the guy wasn't lying. And there were a lot of other people who reported the same exact thing that he was pointing his gun right at people, at families walking down the street. 
at people in their cars telling them to get out of the car. And the journalist that interviewed him in that video later said that he seemed very detached in a naive way when he was talking to him. So it seems pretty clear to me that he was basically just cleaning up his act for the camera when he was going around asking people if they needed help. And it's much more likely that earlier he was being a little bit more aggressive with his rifle. So if he's pointing his gun at people, that's breaking the law according to Wisconsin Statute 941.20, Section 1, Paragraph C. And according to Wisconsin Statute 939.48, Section 2, Paragraph A, that voids the self-defense argument unless he was facing death or great bodily harm. And if you consider an unarmed man chasing you out a deadly threat, you can literally consider any confrontation a deadly threat, which means that murder would be justified in every single confrontation, which it clearly is not. So his privilege to claim self-defense in this situation is not valid, which would mean he had just committed a felony, which provoked the following two shootings because he was being driven out because of it, which also voids his right to self-defense in the second and third shootings as well. So the last point about self-defense is whether or not he was acting as a provocateur as an excuse so that he could use his gun. Now, that's not nearly as easy to nail down because you have to determine what his exact intentions were. And that gets muddied with his official purpose that he was there to defend this used car lot. But to be honest, it's very possible that somebody like him with that kind of personality cares much less about the property he's claiming to defend. And it's much more about the opportunity for momentary authority. And that can be further validated if he was going around pointing his gun at people that day as well, telling them to get out of the car. So was he truly there because he cared so much about that used car lot? Or was he there because a part of him was excited at the prospect of getting to play with people's tensions in order to manufacture a situation that might allow him to live out his power fantasy? So that can't be said for sure, but I think there's a pretty good case for the latter. So the case for self-defense does not hold up for Kyle Rittenhouse. According to several Wisconsin state laws, the first shooting cannot be chalked up to self-defense, and thus neither can the shooting that killed the second man. Now that third shooting, where he shot the man in the arm, that man did have a gun on him. He had a Glock, I think. So there's a much better defense for that, for Kyle Rittenhouse, because a man with a firearm running up to you can be conceived as a deadly threat, which means deadly force can legally be used to compromise the threat against you. But there is a 2002 Wisconsin case, State v. Watkins, where it was determined that Although intentionally pointing a firearm at another constitutes a violation of statute 941.20 under subsection 1, which we had read earlier, a person is privileged to point a gun at another person in self-defense if the person reasonably believes that the threat of force is necessary to prevent or terminate what he or she reasonably believes to be an unlawful interference. So if you would consider somebody that had just murdered two people unlawfully, an unlawful interference, then according to State v. Watkins, it would be lawful for you to point a firearm at that person. I'm not, not to fire it, according to that, but to point it at him. So the lone fact that the third man that he had shot in the arm had a gun on him may not be a legal defense for shooting him in the arm the way he did. So moving on, the Castle Doctrine defense. So he was defending property, and we have a right to defend our property. It's, it's America after all, right? Well, let's look at the law. Wisconsin's current Castle Doctrine law was signed by Governor Scott Walker in 2011. So this is essentially a stand-your-ground law, and it provides immunity to the self-defense laws that I just talked about. So there's no requirement to retreat. There's no proportionate force law. 
but the law is only applicable to individuals who utilize self-defense in their dwellings. Homeowners or business owners who use a gun in self-defense while on their property. And the criminal must have forcibly entered or be in the process of attempting to forcibly enter and the defender must be present in the home, car, or business. And this law does not protect you if you are already engaging in criminal activity yourself. So obviously, none of this is even close to being an adequate defense for Kyle. He wasn't at the property. He was even allegedly defending. And even if he was, it wasn't his property. If anybody in his crew were to shoot somebody in defense of another property, according to Wisconsin's Castle Doctrine, they would not be protected by law unless they were actually the owner of that property. And to be clear, I'm not defending those that are burning down and destroying small businesses and saying that the owners have no right to self-defense because obviously they do and it is wrong to burn down those small businesses. I'm just saying that's not applicable to this situation, especially considering the fact he wasn't even anywhere near that used car lot. So the castle adoption defense, that does not work at all. The third argument I hear is whether or not it was legal for him to possess the firearm in Wisconsin as a 17-year-old in the first place. So there are clearly contradicting arguments. It was widely stated early on that he wasn't legally able to possess a firearm in Wisconsin as a baby of 17 years old. But his defense attorney has been saying that's outright false. Let's get it clear. It's false. It seems like it should be pretty straightforward. It's either legal or it isn't. So let's look at the law. Wisconsin statute 948.6 covers possession of a dangerous weapon by a person under 18. So section one defines a dangerous weapon as any firearm loaded or unloaded. Fun fact, it also includes brass knuckles, nunchucks, ancient battle gloves, and ninja stars. Now section two, paragraph A states, any person under 18 years of age who possesses or goes armed with a dangerous weapon is guilty of a class A misdemeanor. So sounds pretty straightforward right there. If you're under 18, it's illegal to possess any dangerous weapon, which includes firearms. And some news sources stop right there. But of course, it isn't that straightforward. I mean, this is Wisconsin after all. And I, being somebody that is from Wisconsin, has lived in Wisconsin all my life, I know that people begin handling guns at a very young age, much younger than 18. So the, the law can't end there. Hunting is literally bigger than like any holiday for half the state. So of course, there has to be something, some provision to this law to make that legal so you can't end there. So let's keep digging. Section three, paragraph C states, this section applies only to a person under 18 years of age who possesses or is armed with a rifle or shotgun if the person is in violation of statute 941.28 or is not in compliance with statutes 29.304 and 29.593. So this means that anybody in Wisconsin under the age of 18 can legally possess a rifle or a shotgun as long as they aren't in violation of these three other statutes. So let's look at the three other statutes. The first one, 941.28, specifies that they can't be short-barreled shotguns or rifles. Now, I don't know for sure, but I'm pretty sure Kyle's rifle wasn't short-barreled. It was an AR-15 style rifle. So I don't think that's considered short-barreled. So that, that one changes nothing. So it's still legal. Second one, 29.304, has to do with uh, different restrictions for those that are 16 years and old and younger. So that's also not relevant. The final one, 29.593, that has to do with hunting licenses. And to be honest, I've read it. I don't fully understand it and like confidently enough to tell you whether it makes a difference or not, but I'm pretty sure it doesn't make a difference. 
what I get from it is that you need to complete a course or obtain a certificate in order to hunt, but not in order to just possess a gun. It's not totally clear to me, but I think it makes no difference. But that third one gives you a decent idea of why this provision exists in the first place. It's meant to allow kids to go hunting in a rural state where hunting is a very popular activity. So it's just a very poorly worded provision that doesn't specify the purpose nearly enough. It's vagueness essentially cancels out the entire first first section of that law. And even though it was obviously intended for hunting purposes, which Kyle was not doing in the traditional sense, at least, it might actually be a credible defense for Kyle possessing the gun in Wisconsin, even though he was underage. And he didn't bring the gun across state lines. Allegedly, it was his friend's gun who lives in Wisconsin. So this this incredibly poorly drafted paragraph may actually clear him of this one misdemeanor he is facing. It may have actually been technically legal for him to possess that firearm. Let's move on to his last defense, the defense they're using in court. So his lawyer decided to go with the approach that Kyle was part of a well-regulated militia. And so he's protected under the Second Amendment. And Wisconsin laws are then unconstitutional. Therefore, they don't need to be followed. So this is a pretty bad defense. And it's it's a really tough one, too, I would imagine. I'm not a lawyer, but I mean, he not only does he have to prove that Kyle's actions were justified, but he also has to prove that Wisconsin state laws are in direct violation of the Constitution. So they essentially have to find Wisconsin state law guilty in order to find Kyle innocent. And that's very unlikely because this sort of defense has already been tried several times before. So we, we kind of already know the results. So let's dig into it a little bit. So he's saying it's unconstitutional to place limits on a constitutional right. That's one of the points. Well, it's already been determined that pretty much all of our rights are still subject to certain limits and regulations. The First Amendment gives us freedom of speech. It doesn't specify anywhere in the Constitution that we aren't free to call harm on others, yet that is illegal. It's a limit to our freedom of speech. We have the freedom to practice religion, yet we can't just go like sacrificing animals, even if it's a part of our religion. It doesn't say you can't do that in the Constitution, yet that's a limit on our freedom of religion. It's not specified anywhere in the Constitution. Our rights are not limitless. This, the Constitution isn't an exhaustive take on our rights. And the Second Amendment is not an exception to that. So in the case District of Columbia versus Heller in 2008, Supreme Court Justice Scalia stated, the right secured by the Second Amendment is not unlimited, and that the right was not a right to keep and carry any weapon whatsoever, in any manner whatsoever, and for whatever purpose. Another federal case determined that the right to keep arms in the founding period did not extend to juveniles. But then that will start getting you, the founding period, that'll start getting you into the talk of militias, the militia section, the saving grace of the Second Amendment for Kyle Rittenhouse. So you might say people under the age of 18 have been allowed to carry firearms and military service in the past. So what's up with that? Well, first of all, that's actually acknowledged in the Wisconsin state law that we went over earlier on firearm possession for those under 18. Section three, paragraph B of that law states, this section does not apply to a person under 18 years of age who is a member of the armed forces or National Guard, and who possesses or is armed with a dangerous weapon in the line of duty. But again, the argument here is that the Second Amendment voids Wisconsin state law, so we can't get back into that. So you might say, well, okay, he wasn't of age, or in the armed forces, or National Guard, or in the line of duty, but he was part of a well-regulated militia. Clearly, it was a well-regulated militia. 
And it says it right in there in the Second Amendment, a well-regulated militia, blah, 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 right to bear arms. So what's a well-regulated militia? Is it a group of kids with assault rifles? Probably not, but let's dig into it. So first off, the term militia has changed over time. When we think of militia today, today when we live in a country where we have the largest military in the world, it's very different from what a militia was back when the Constitution was originally drafted. Back then, militias were organized by the state. They weren't self-appointed vigilante gangs. They were state-based institutions. It was actually a check against the federal government to prevent tyranny. The state had a right to a well-regulated militia to defend itself against a potentially tyrannical federal government, but it was still under the authority of the state. That's what's meant by regulated, an organized collective of citizens trained to the standards of the state, not just anybody with a gun. So put in the context of when the Constitution was drafted, Kyle's vigilante approach would not be considered part of a well-regulated militia, but let's look at it in the context of today. So the modern definition of a militia is defined by the Militia Act of 1903, and it divides militias into two classes, organized militias and unorganized militias. So an organized militia is a, that consists of state militia forces. That's the National Guard and Naval Militia. Unorganized militias are comprised of the reserve militia, every able-bodied man of at least 17 and under 45 years of age, not a member of the National Guard or Naval Militia. So if you were to make the argument that he were part of a militia, he would not fall within the category of organized. He could only fall under the category of an unorganized militia. And that's if he were to fall under either of them. Now, the Second Amendment just says well-regulated. doesn't say organized or unorganized. So what does that mean? Regulated means controlled or supervised by means of rules and regulations. So that's actually close to how we would define militia in the context of the late 18th century, a collective of citizens trained to an established standard. So the argument can be had that it doesn't have to be state regulated, especially because it just says well-regulated. But either way, it has to be regulated in some form or another. The vigilante militias that we're seeing form around the country are not well-regulated by definition. They're about as regulated as a pickup game of basketball. So to argue that he's part of a well-regulated militia is by definition not true. So nothing about this Second Amendment defense is going to hold up. So according to the facts and Wisconsin state law, this is clearly an unjustified shooting. And the fact that I even felt the need to make a video to prove that it was an illegal act is terrifying. The actions of a lone shooter are tragic enough. They're terrible. But at least when there's a shooting, you can chalk it up to more or less an anomaly because the vast majority of people aren't like that. And yes, one person can do a lot of damage. Murdering one person is a tragedy. Like Politics aside, in Kenosha, in Portland, shootings are wrong and everyone agrees with that until they don't. Not everybody agrees now. And that is a much bigger problem than just a lone shooting. Like you look back at history and you see the thousands or millions of people that were complacent or silent during acts of mass genocide, and you think, how in the hell did so many people just stand there silent or worse, actually support or participate in that? It seems crazy to think that that many people could be so blind, but it's easy to be on the right side of history when it's already history. It's much harder when you're living through it. 
because you're in the middle of all the propaganda. You're being bombarded on all sides, by all sides. And when people start dropping even their most basic morals and principles, that's a very bad sign that we are far too along in the wrong direction. One person shooting and killing two others is terrible, but millions of people defending that person is much worse, much worse. Media defending that person unapologetically is worse. The president of the United States defending that person is terrifying. When Trump defended him, he granted permission for more acts like this to be committed. When he called him a patriot, he sent out a message saying that you can take any action necessary. As long as you're on my side, I have your back. This isn't going to get better as long as people continue to defend acts like this. Because a lone actor is a tragedy, but a complacent population is devastating. Don't be on the wrong side of history. Political bullshit.